Well, good morning, West Park. That's a good, hearty response. Thank you for that. If you would take your Bible and open to Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17. I don't know about you, but I have really enjoyed this journey through the book of Luke. Uh, It's been such a blessing to me and think about our King, our King Jesus. And we're going to talk more about him today. Luke chapter 17. I'd like to begin by just reading. We're going to read the first 10 verses. If you would, if you're able, would you stand with me as we read to show honor to God's word? And he said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be rooted, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it would obey you. Will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? You also... When you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask you to bless the reading of your word, the hearing of your word, and Lord, the preaching of your word. Father, I pray that you would give us receptive hearts that you would speak to us by your Spirit in words not only that I say, but as your Spirit takes your Word and applies it to each individual heart. Lord, I pray that you would be glorified in this place. I pray that, that we would be drawn closer to you, that our hearts would be lifted up in worship of our King. King Jesus, for it's in His name, Father, that we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you. So the title of the message this morning is a question. Are you a servant of the King? You know, a couple weeks ago, there was a a video announcement that... uh, that was played with me in it, and uh, Lisa had asked me to uh, 
to ask folks and encourage folks to get involved in children's ministry, so I was happy to do that, and it was also a great excuse to show off some grandchildren. I thought that was a wonderful opportunity. I love my grandchildren, and so I'm going to tell you a grandchild story this morning. Uh, it, does, it does have an application, but I, I might have twisted it just a little bit to make it work, but I just got to tell you got to tell you the story and the point of the story is I'll go ahead and tell you what the point of the story is things are not always like they seem so um, a year and a half ago my my daughter my oldest daughter Megan and her husband Steve and the family went out west for some medical treatment uh, that they needed and they they were in Scottsdale Arizona and there was a wonderful family there that ministered to them and uh, and and actually allowed them to stay with them while Megan was having her treatment. And, the, and this couple, they're, I, I, I would estimate, based on what the kids have told me, they're probably about mine and Kathy's age, in their late 50s, maybe early 60s, right around that age. They, uh, they were just wonderful and decided to adopt the kids kind of as their grandchildren too. They gave them Christmas gifts. And it was just such a blessing to us to know that somebody was loving on our family like that. Well, that was a year and a half ago, and Megan has, she has four children. Two youngest are twins, twin boys, Isaac and Elijah. They're six years old. So a year and a half ago, they were four and a half. And, uh, and so they, they were talking recently about this couple, and one of the twins made a comment about, uh, about the lady from this couple that she was going to have a baby. And, uh, and Megan proceeded to tell the kids, she's, she's not going to have a baby. She's, she's a grandmom. You know, she's, she's more like grandmommy and poppy. You know, she's not going to have a baby. And, and he said, but she has black hair. <laughs> so apparently to a six-year-old, ladies... If you are still dyeing your hair, you're able to have babies. <laughs> well, I got a good chuckle out of that one, as you did too. You see why I had to tell you that story. Now, as I said, uh, things are not always like they appear, right? And the reason they're not always like they, they appear is because sometimes we don't have all the information. Or maybe we don't understand the information we have. And so I want to ask a question this morning, and that question again is, are you a servant of the king? Are you a servant of the king? As we read this passage at first glance, and I'll tell you, when, when, I, when I was given this passage, this is the passage I was going to preach, I thought, well, it would be nice to break that up into three sermons. Because it almost seems like they don't have anything to do with each other, but they really do. Because the, the key to understanding the first, the first six verses is really the last three. Because Jesus is talking about being his servant. And so as we work our way through this, I'm going to ask you not only the initial question, are you a servant of the king, but I'm going to ask you some other questions 
uh, that will serve as my outline, okay? So the first question as a servant of the king is, do you have a proper view of sin? Do you have a proper view of sin? As we were worshiping in song earlier, and I hope you don't view that as the only part that's worship. This is worship as well. You're worshiping the Lord in the Word now. We were worshiping the Lord in song earlier, singing about the Word. And and so as we were worshiping in song earlier and we were thinking about all that Jesus has done for us. I don't, I don't know about you, but that just overwhelms me when I begin to really think about uh, one of the lines of one of the songs talked about how he tore that veil. When he tore that veil, he was opening the way for you and I. You and I, Gentiles, sinners, to have access To the Holy One. Do we have a proper view of sin? I I, I think it's not, certainly not something we can blame on an understanding of the grace of God from the Word of God, but it's human nature that we, we tend to vacillate from one extreme to the other sometimes. And so if we understand that we're saved by grace through faith without works, which is absolutely true, absolutely scriptural, sometimes we can gloss over the seriousness of sin. If we're raised in a Christian home and we really never rebelled much and we have always been a good girl or a good boy... (laughs) You know, sometimes we, we can miss, really, the wickedness and depravity of our own hearts. Sin is serious. Sin is an offense against a holy, sinless God. Sin is so serious that Jesus deals with it pretty seriously in these first four verses. First of all, he wants us to realize the serious nature of sin. We're to be careful not to cause others to sin because he says in verse 1, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. That's pretty serious talk. If you could think about this, I mean, you and I, we've read this. If, if you've, you've been a Christian for a while, you've, you've read this, you've heard this over and over, it can kind of lose its impact if we're not careful. But, but a millstone would have been used to grind grain. It would have been extremely heavy. And if that had been put around your neck and you were thrown into the sea, you would, you would sink to the bottom. You would be trying to gasp for air in the water and unable to breathe and you would be terrified. 
If you've ever had a time where you couldn't catch your breath, you know that that is a terrifying experience. Imagine that you were connected to this stone and you were being dragged underwater and you were not strong enough to get it off of you. You couldn't escape it and you knew that if there was no way to escape, you were going to drown and you were trying to hold your breath and, and thinking about, if I could just get up to the top of the water and you're being drugged down to the bottom, that's horrible. Jesus said it would be better for you to have that happen to you than that you would cause someone else to sin. We are to be careful not to cause others to sin. How could we cause someone else to sin? How could we do that? Well, by our sin. We can set the example for others, a good example or a bad example. First, we think of our children because he says little ones. By the way, this is not the word that's specifically talking about little children. He's just talking about people who you might have an effect on. And the little one could apply to the person sitting next to you. It doesn't have to be a little child. It can be a little child, but it could be anyone. One of his little ones. We're all his little ones. And he said it would be better that a millstone was tied around our neck or or placed around our neck and dragged down into the bottom of the sea, then we would cast, we would cause someone else to sin. When you sin or when I sin, it's always an act of selfishness. It's about us. But when we begin to think about how our sin affects those around us, that should have an impact. And think about the fact that we are accountable. We are accountable for causing others to sin. So we need to take seriously our own sin. We need to be assured also to address sin when it happens. Verse 3 says, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. If your brother sins, rebuke him. Why, why is that important? Well, because we're here for one another. <laughs> we want to not only avoid causing someone else to sin, but we want to help one another not to sin. So when one of us sins, our brother needs to confront us. If we are blinded to the sin that we're committing, someone needs to confront us. Says, well, I don't want anybody in my business like that. <laughs> Well, it needs to be done lovingly, carefully. It needs to be done humbly, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Paul talked about in the book of Galatians. But sin must be confronted. Why? Because sin is serious. Sin is serious. And then we are, work, we are to work to repair damage in relationships that sin causes. Because if we rebuke our brother, he says in verse 4, if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. See, the whole point of confronting the sin is reconciliation. It's not judging someone. 
It's not putting someone else down. But the whole point of sin being confronted is reconciliation. Sin separates. Forgiveness reconciles. And so instead of when someone sins against you, you grow bitter. And there may be some of you here today that someone has sinned against you and you're bitter about it and you haven't done anything about it. You need to repent because what you are doing right now is sin. You must rebuke him, do it in love, and work toward re uh, reconciliation. Sin is damaging. It's dividing. And so we are to have a proper view of sin. And you know, someone sins against you seven times in a day, and you keep going back and you, you confront them and they repent. You know, that's going to get a little tiresome after a while, right? How often a day does Jesus forgive you? See, we're to have the same attitude toward forgiveness of sin that Jesus has toward us. And so we're to have a proper view of sin. Second question, do you have, do you practice a biblical faith? Because right after this, the apostles, <laughs> the apostles make a request, Lord, increase our faith. Why are they saying that? Well, they understand that if you're going to have to deal with sin, it's going to take faith. If you're going to have to put this into practice, people can really sin against you, and he's not talking about seven times. By the way, if you've got a a place where you're marking it down, seven, eight, that's it. I don't have to do that when Jesus said, just said seven. <laughs> that's, that's not the spirit of what he's saying. If you're keeping records, you know what you're not doing? You're not forgiving. <laughs> so the idea is not you just, you keep seven or some, you know, another place he said 70 times seven. 490, I'm done. Wow, it, I tell you what, if Jesus only forgave me 490 times, I'd be in hell a long time ago. No, the, say, the, the forgiveness is to be complete. The forgiveness is to be continual. But sin has to be dealt with. And so in order to do this, it takes faith. And they said, increase our faith. And Jesus' answer Seems a little weird. He doesn't say, okay, I grant you greater faith. What does he say? If you had faith, like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. If you had faith as a grain of mustard seed, I've heard a lot of sermons on this mustard seed thing. Have you? You can get real elaborate about the mustard seed. You can talk about, you know, all the characteristics of the mustard seed. You can do a lot of things with the mustard seed. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on the mustard seed. But what I do want to do is I want to point out the fact that Jesus used this little tiny seed as an illustration many times in Scripture. As a matter of fact, in the New Testament, there are five references to Jesus talking about the mustard seed. 
And each time he's using the mustard seed to compare to something. There are two things that he compares the mustard seed to. Here, he compares the mustard seed to faith. But he also compares the mustard seed to the kingdom of God. As a matter of fact, Luke tells us about that in Luke chapter 13. If you'd like, just a few pages back, I'd like you to take a glance at that. Because what I want to do, instead of going into a lot of talk about the mustard seed, I just want to see how Jesus, Jesus was using the mustard seed. When Jesus is talking about the mustard seed, chapter 13 of the book of Luke and verse 18. Here he's comparing it to the kingdom of heaven. But I want you to notice the qualities, the properties of the mustard seed that Jesus is, is talking about. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. Jesus is comparing the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, to a mustard seed. And he gives you two properties of the mustard seed, two basic properties of the mustard seed that he is using for this comparison. First of all, the mustard seed is small. It is small. It's like a grain of mustard seed. And a man took and sowed in his garden. But the second aspect is that it has great potential. The mustard seed can grow and this tree comes up and birds can actually rest in the branches of the, of the tree that was produced by this tiny little grain, this tiny little seed. And so Jesus is saying in our passage in chapter 17 that mustard seed is not only like the kingdom of God, but it's also like faith. So what are the aspects that, that we could apply to faith? First of all, it can be small. Notice how they said, increase our faith, and he didn't just wave his hand and say, your faith is now increased. But he said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, use that same term, a, gra a, a, a grain of mustard seed, it's tiny. If you had a tiny amount of faith, you could move trees just by faith. In other words, what he's saying is you could take a tiny amount of faith and you can accomplish great things. How is that possible? Well, remember what the man back in chapter 13 did with that mustard seed? He sowed it. He sowed the mustard seed. In other words, he used, he exercised, he planted the mustard seed. See, we, we have to plant our faith. We have to exercise our faith. Don't wait to act in faith until you have more faith. This means yes. You get this? This means yes. Means no. You, you understand where we're going? Don't wait until you have more faith before you use your faith. Use the faith you have. Act on the faith you have. Remember what James said. James said, 
faith without works is what? Dead. We are saved by faith without works. But the faith that saves us works. If your faith does not work, your faith is dead. You may assent to a creed, but if you do not act on that, you don't really have faith. So when they are concerned about dealing with sin and, and they said, give us more faith because we can't do this, he's saying, act on the faith you have. And you can do great things. You can do great things. And then, sorry, my notes messed up. <laughs> And then he says, or, or the next question is rather, do you live in humble dependence on your king? Do you live in humble dependence on your king? Look down in verse 7. And, and just think about this. Now Jesus, is, he's talking about the mustard seed thing, mustard seed faith. You can do great things with this mustard seed faith. And then he goes right into this parable. And here's the parable. Will any of you, any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep, say to him, when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So the parable here is a parable of someone who has a servant. And I like the fact that this is not just a specific type of servant. You notice that he says, you have a servant that is plowing or keeping sheep. So it would be any kind of servant. So someone who has a servant, when the servant comes in from the field, the implication is that, that the answer to this question is no. We would not invite this servant to, to sit right now beside us and, and recline at the table. Why? Because he's a servant. He's a servant. He has a job to do. And when he comes in from the field, whether he's plowing or whether he's taking care of the sheep, whatever the servant is doing, when he comes in to, from the field, he's still a servant. And he has responsibilities to take care of. And part of those responsibilities is he's, he's to feed the master. He's to feed the master first. And so... He says, you would rather say to him, you prepare the supper for me, then you dress for dinner, dress properly, and then you serve me. And then once you have done all of those things, you can sit down and eat. But you are a servant. The job of a servant is to take care of the bidding of the master. Now, in this story, we have... Two characters. We have the servant and we have the master. 
So first of all, the servant. The servant, like I said earlier, is any type of servant. He could be taking care of sheep or he could be plowing. He could be preaching a sermon or he could be acting as an usher. He could be someone who cleans the church building or he could be someone whose ministry is just simply prayer because they're homebound and they're not able to go anywhere else. The servant could be any type of servant. Any type of servant of the king. And so the job of the servant is to do what the servant does. What does the servant do? The servant does all that he's commanded. And then we have the master. The master. Well, obviously the master here is is to be compared with Jesus. Jesus is our master. We are his servants. He's the master. He's the Lord. He's the king. And so, what does the master do? Well, he has absolute authority over the servant. Absolute authority. The master is able to tell the servant anything that the servant is required to do. And because the servant belongs to the master, he is bound by duty to obey the master. Because he belongs to the master. He's a a servant. He's not just an employee. I don't know about you, but when I, I guess it's the way my mama taught me, I like to say thank you. He says, does he thank the servant? And I'm thinking, when I go to the restaurant and, you know, the, the server brings me my food, I always say thank you. That's a little different relationship, though. That's, that's not a servant-master relationship. This is something that culturally is hard for us to identify with. But this is a servant-master relationship. The master owns the servant. Now, in our case, Jesus is the master. Jesus is the master. And he owns us really in two ways. First of all, he owns us because he created us. We wouldn't even exist had he not made us, right? He owns us because he created us. There's a little story, I've shared it before uh, many times. I don't know if I've shared it in, in here or not, but a little story about a little boy who, who made a boat. He carved this boat out of, out of wood and he worked really hard, diligently to make this little boat, and put a sail on it and he, and he put it out in a, in a body of water and and, and let it sail, but then the wind caught the sail, and it, and it got away, and he kept trying to get the boat, but it finally went downstream, and he lost the boat. He was very sad, because he worked very hard on that boat. He loved that boat. He made that boat, but that boat was lost. And sometime later, he was in town, and he looked in the window of the local store, and he saw that boat for sale. Someone had found the boat, and it ended up in the store, and it had a price tag on it. The little boy went in and told him that was his boat. He said, well, it's for sale. Here's the price. So the little boy worked hard and earned the money to buy back the boat. And when he bought back the boat, he was holding it in his hand, and he said, now you're twice mine. I made you first, and now I bought you. See, He made us. He created us. 
The Bible says that all things were made by him and without him was not anything made that was made. Jesus made it all. He is the creator. But we have strayed from him. We have, we have sailed away from him because of our sin. All we like sheep have, turned, have, have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And so he came to this earth. He lived as a servant the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And he became obedient even unto death, the death of the cross, in order to take our place and purchase us back at the price of his own blood. And now if you're a Christian, you're twice his. You belong to him. He is your master. Some years ago, I remember there was a debate about lordship salvation. Don't hear much about that anymore. Is Jesus your savior or is Jesus also your Lord? Well, let me just tell you, <laughs> he's both. Jesus has, does not have a split personality. When you receive Jesus as your savior, he is the Lord. You can't choose what aspect of his character that you take into your life. I, I, don't, I want him to save me. I want him to forgive my sin, but I don't want him telling me what to do. You don't get to do that. Yes, we are saved by grace through faith without works. Absolutely. But let me tell you, when, you, when this Jesus moves into your life, he is king. He is Lord. And if you think you're just getting a ticket to heaven, and then you don't, don't bother me again, Lord, till I get there, you're going to have a rude awakening one day. We are His servants. We belong to Him. He is our master. This is the application to the story. This is what Jesus is talking about. He is the master. And so, what does he say? He says, so you also, he's making the application, verse 10. So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. I was praying about this as I was studying this passage. I was thinking about that statement. We are unworthy servants. The King James used the word unprofitable. I have a business. I understand profit. I understand lack of profit <laughs> more than I understand profit. But what profit is, is you invest in something, whether it's work that you do or, or actually investing in a product or, or maybe a stock or something like that. You make an investment and you invest X amount of dollars, and then when you get a return back from the investment, anything over what you invested is profit. That's what they tell me at work, the way it's supposed to work. You and I do not bring profit to God. That seems kind of shocking. Like, well, that's not very nice to say. 
Am I not worth his time? Oh, that's a different thing. But here's the thing. We do not add anything back to God for his investment to us. In us. In other words, God did not save us to get something out of it. Do you follow? Jesus shed his blood. He gave everything that heaven had to give to purchase you for God. If you're a Christian this morning, you're only a Christian because Jesus gave everything he had for you. He loves you that much. But he didn't love you for what he was going to get out of the relationship. He just loved you. Because that's who he is. As I was praying about that, I thought, Lord, I can't even say that I have done all that was commanded of me. I mean, if I had done all that was commanded of me, you're telling me I'm an unworthy servant. But I haven't even done that. I'm less than unworthy. But he loved me anyway. What grace. What grace he has shown to us. So where does that leave us? About being a servant. Well, we're not servants of God in order to get some gain for God. We're servants of God out of gratitude for what he's done for us. But no less servants. And as servants of God, we must have a proper view of sin. As servants of God, we must exercise the faith that he's given us. And as servants of God, we must humbly depend on him because we are nothing without him. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. And we must recognize as servants of Christ that if we do grow in our ability to recognize and properly deal with sin, if we do grow in our ability to exercise our faith, that it's not us, it's Him. It's Him in us. Paul said, I know that in me, that is, in my flesh, dwells no good thing. And as we recognize our own sinfulness before God, we cannot help but give Him glory for the great grace that he's given to us. We're a ragtag bunch of misfits. But Jesus loves us. And if there's any good thing in me, if there's any good thing in you, it's not us, it's him through us. And we must depend on him totally. He is our king and our Lord, our master he owns us. He purchased us with His own blood. And if you're here today and you've not received Him as your Savior and your Lord, I'm inviting you today 
And he's inviting you, more importantly. Because let me tell you, you may, you may think, sounds like a taskmaster to me. No. No. He is a loving, a loving king, a loving savior who gave everything so that you could know him. So that you could have your sins forgiven. So that you could have purpose in your life again. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Lord we thank you. We know. We are just lowly servants. We know that even if we did obey everything we've been commanded. We would still be unprofitable. But Lord, we are far from that. We are sinners. We are worthy of eternal separation from you because of our sin. There is none righteous. No, not one. None that understands. None that seeks after God. We are all together unprofitable. But Lord, you stepped in. You paid the price to purchase us. Even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. So Father, I pray, those of us who know you, Lord, we would be motivated to live for you to be servants of the Most High God, to consider that the greatest honor we could possibly have. And Lord, those who do not know you, Father, I pray that you would work in hearts even now. Draw people to Jesus. Which is in His name we pray. Amen.